and then we'll pray and begin. So take a few moments to prepare your heart to listen to God's word. Confess any sin, ask him to remove any distractions, and cry out to him. Father, we do long for that day when we will do just as we've sung about, rise. And when you, our Lord, will come and gather your people to be with you forever, Paul said. What precious words. And yet, even as we long for that day, we are well aware of the fact that we live in a world that's still infected by sin. Not only the sin that is in our hearts, even as believers, but that sin that is rampant in the heart of those who have not yet come to know you as their God and their Savior. And as we've been looking, we know that there is yet more terrible times to come on the earth, and people to be saved at that time will suffer tremendously. And yet, the hope throughout the ages is that we will rise, and our future is not this earth, the sufferings and the discouragements and the pain that we endure here, but the future for your people is the new heavens and a new earth. Ultimately, we will be with you forever and every tear will be wiped away and you will be our joy and delight without hindrance forever. Encourage our hearts with these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We'll be looking this morning at verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8. This is part 1 of the beginning of the end. This section actually goes to verse 14, but we'll cover just the opening part uh, this morning. And we are, as we enter into verse 4 and following, entering into Jesus' answer to the question that His disciples asked in verse 3 of chapter 24. I'll read that to remind us. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now as noted last week, this is really in the mind of the disciples two questions. When will the destruction of the temple come that he had just told them about? And when will be... The signs of your coming in the end of the age, which for the disciples was a single event, largely, or a single complex of events. And so that is the question that Jesus will be answering for them. They're wondering, when are you, the Messiah we have come to trust, going to establish the full glory of your presence and your kingdom? When is that going to take place? Now again, as was mentioned before, that the Jews and the disciples as a part of the Jewish beliefs at that time, largely, thought that the kingdom of the Messiah would be preceded by a time of great distress, an establishment of His kingdom, then a conflict with the nations at which time God would utterly destroy them and establish the glorious kingdom. What they did not understand at that point was that Messiah's suffering, His death, And his resurrection was to be followed by an undefined amount of time wherein God would build his kingdom after Messiah has ascended to the right hand of the Father by sending the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That his people would suffer during this time and then that he would then return to establish his kingdom on earth. They did not fully understand that at that point. Now, as we come in into this section, there are two questions that really need to be determined up front. And they are this. What question or what order of questions of the disciples is Jesus answering in verses 4 through 14 and indeed throughout the rest of the chapter? And what events is he describing? What events is he specifically describing? Now, there are two basic approaches to answering these questions, although each has variations within each one, but there are two general basic approaches to 
approaching this section of Matthew chapter 24. The first is known as the preterist position, and the second is known as a futurist position. The preterist position maintains this, that the events that Jesus is describing in chapter 4, and indeed throughout the rest of chapter 24, beginning in verse 4, is fully fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And that all that he's prophesying here is an answer then to the first question of the disciples. When will the destruction of the temple come? Moreover, they would hold then that all of the events of Revelation were in fact fulfilled in 70 AD. And now they serve merely as a symbolic reminder of a cycle of the ascendance of evil and the ultimate victory of God's people throughout the ages. That is known as the preterist position. Secondly, there is the futurist position, which maintains that the events Jesus describes are yet to be fulfilled in the future, particularly in the last days just prior to the return of Christ. So in other words, the futurists maintain that Jesus' answer is primarily focused on what is known as the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel which is this final seven years of earth's history before the return of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom sitting on David's throne, which we'll get to in chapter 25. Now it's a period, this tribulation period then is, that marks God's final destruction on this fallen world as well as the rise, the reign, and the ultimate destruction of the Antichrist. Now while this period, this tribulation period, involves the whole world, it is particularly viewed in Scripture most often from the vantage point of God's dealings with the nation of Israel specifically. In other words, at the center of these events is the rise to power of the Antichrist who will be marked by a false covenant of peace that he makes with the nation of Israel, a covenant which he will dramatically break halfway into the seven years, so after three and a half years, where he will turn then and be their greatest persecutor. And also during this time that many within Israel will be saved. Now this largely comes from the book of Daniel. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. We will in the future, but let me read to you Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now this section begins with Jesus having declared 70 weeks in the final wrapping up or the summation of the history of the people of Israel. Sixty-nine of those weeks have been fulfilled, but the seventh yet remains to be fulfilled. Each year in these weeks, or each day in these weeks, serves as one year in prophetic language. So he says in verse 27 of Daniel 9, just listen as I read, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, referring here to the Antichrist. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed, poured out on the one who makes desolation. They're speaking then of the ultimate destruction of the Antichrist, the one who brings such suffering to his people. Now this is repeated In Matthew chapter 24, this Antichrist is spoken of specifically in verse 15 in 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 12, passages that we will spend more time on in the coming weeks. Now we hold then to a futurist view, we at Newtown Bible Church, and argue that these events then were fulfilled, were not fulfilled in 70 AD. And while many other reasons could be added, let me give you at least five. At least five. The first is this. There is no way to fit the events of 70 A.D. or all the events in 70 A.D. into the language of Matthew 24. For example, in verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations. That is something that is yet in the process of being fulfilled. There's no way that that could be made to fit the events of 70 A.D. or immediately prior or subsequent to them uh, either. Secondly, Jesus' statement in verse 8 of 24 that these are merely the beginning of the birth pains and what he will cannot or beginning of the birth pains cannot be made to fit reasonably into 2,000 years of church history. 
In other words, birth pains fits the imagery, as we'll see later, into the very short time period of time, namely seven years of the tribulation. Again, in verses 21 through 24, he speaks of a tribulation that will come that, in verse 21, has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Again, language that simply cannot be made to fit the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as terrible and as devastating as that time was. And even again, in verse 27, he says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he follows that also, number five, with these cataclysmic events. Again, none of which has happened in 70 A.D. In no way can the plain meaning of this language be made to fit that historical event in the past. Now Luke 21, 12 through 24, which we'll consider in a few weeks, does look at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but Matthew is getting past that and looking to the future period of the Antichrist and the nation of Israel in which God will bring His destruction upon the world. Indeed, He is answering the question, when will the end of the age come? Now, that being said, many of the events in Matthew 24, 4 through 8 particularly, have parallels in the experience of the church. And this will be helpful for us to understand. Now the reason there are parallels is because there is a real sense in which we as the church, indeed the entire world, but we as the church are living in the last days. Living in the last days. Hebrews 1-2 says this, In these last days, God has spoken to us in a Son. In other words, He speaks now to us in a Son. These are the last days. In Hebrews 9-26, the writer refers to this present time as a consummation of the ages. Interesting, using the same language that the disciples used in their question in verse 3. And even again, Paul, when he speaks to Timothy, trying to encourage him in his ministry there at Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says this, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then in verse 5, he tells them to avoid him, to avoid such men as these, such as described in the verses right before that, in verses 1 through 4. So in other words... These times will come in the last days, but Timothy, you are right now dealing with these characteristics of false teachers, a love that's grown cold, and so forth, because you are living in the last days. So from the perspective of Scripture, we are already living in the last days, the final age before these coming events of God in the person of Christ. Now, this is no surprise then that many of the events, again, are parallel. Because even though there will be a future revelation of the man of lawlessness, which Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians, he also tells them that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already here. It's already deceiving and hardening men's heart and doing its work. In addition to that, John tells us in 1 John 2.18 this, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know that it is the last hour. So again, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in creation in this fallen world. The spirit of Antichrist is already out deceiving people in this present age, in this last hour. So there are parallels of experience, but these are at best foreshadowings. They will find their culmination and ultimate expression in the final days of the earth with the presence of the Antichrist and the specific judgments of God that are coming. So there are hints, there are similarities, but these are not the events that Jesus is speaking of. The events that we experience now. So he is essentially then answering their question in this way. He's beginning with a description of the end of the age. We'll move into their second to last question regarding the signs of his coming and we'll skip over 
their question about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So he's answering the last two questions in reverse order. As I mentioned already this morning, we'll cover verses 4 through 8, what he describes at the end of verse 8 as the beginning then of these birth pangs, the beginning of birth pangs. So while this is a period that is yet future, that he's focusing on, there is yet a universal principle for us to understand throughout, and it's this. It's written in your bulletin. Be spiritually discerning, prepared for suffering, and confident in God's sovereign hand while living in the midst of an evil generation. Now let's begin to look at the text in verse 4. And note the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. And he first warns against deception. Actually, let me read the text and then we'll swing back up to verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and, you, and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Swing back up to verse 4. As I mentioned, let's note a warning against deception. A warning against deception. Notice the beginning of the verse. Jesus answered and said to them, See that you are not deceived or misled, led astray. See that you are not tricked, as it were. Now, why would he start with such a blunt warning against deception? That seems an odd way to answer their question. Because his first concern is that his disciples then, people throughout the ages, but particularly those in the time just before his coming, would have discernment and would not follow after lies. Indeed, one of the key temptations will be to be falsely persuaded by individuals who have wrong conclusions and wrong ideas and make false claims about their spiritual pedigree. He says, don't be deceived then by false Christ. Look at verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and many will be deceived. In my name they will come, saying, I am the Christ. Now some take in my name to mean that this is a specific reference to false Christian leaders. And indeed, we understand that there have been many false Christian leaders that have been raised up through the ages. We can think of some not far from our own time. David Koresh, Jim Jones, going back a little further, and many, many others. However, again, Jesus is addressing here the final days of the Jews. And the claim, I am the Christ, better fits the Jewish messianic expectation. Now, as I've mentioned before, that the Jewish revolt, which began in 66 AD, was largely a result and stirred up of a messianic fervor that was a strong part of the Jewish religious mindset, culture, and ethos, really, of that Time. They had messianic, strong messianic expectations. In fact, others had risen trying to play off of this, which are mentioned in Acts, in the book of Acts. Let me note a couple of those for you. Acts chapter 5, verse 36, he tells this, For some time ago, the centurion is speaking to, or they're speaking then of a a revolt that was led up again by the name of a man named Thudius. In verse 36, for some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, most likely there, making some kind of messianic claim. And a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
In verse 37, he mentions another man, a man by the name of Judas of Galilee, who rose up in the days of the census and drew away some after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. He mentions in Acts 21, verse 38, he says this, now, this is where the centurion is speaking to him. He says, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. The point of this being then that the history of Israel has known many who have risen up to make some kind of false messianic claim. The closest example of this was the revolt of Barcoba in 135 AD, in which a man who claimed messianic credentials led a rebellion that was so roundly defeated by the Romans that Israel at that point ceased to be a nation state from that point on until in the 1940s. However, after that revolt in 135, there hasn't been much of an issue among the Jewish people of the same kind of messianic fervor. Indeed, even now they still await Elijah and the coming of the Messiah, but not to the extent that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus, again, is specifically referring to the period just before His return at the beginning of the final days. So while the very initial part of the tribulation will be marked by a relative kind of peace, it will also be marked by great deception that plays on long-laden messianic expectations of the Jews, which may in fact even be a part of what the Antichrist plays on in his final deception. And it will be effective. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5. And will mislead many, or will deceive many. In other words, their claims will be effective in attracting many followers. They will gain the hearing of many. Why will they gain such a hearing? Let me suggest to you at least three reasons. Three reasons that many will follow after this deception at that time. The first is this. Because the deception, the lies, will be followed by great supernatural signs. By great supernatural signs or seemingly supernatural signs. Look over at verse 23 of Matthew 24. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. This is a significant time of deception. A significant time of displays of what seems to be supernatural power, unhuman powers that will work alongside the deception of these false teachers to seemingly confirm their claims. And so that will be greatly increased at the time leading up to the tribulation period. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians referring to the same time. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 8. We'll be jumping back to this chapter a few times. But let me begin in verse 8. Speaking here now of this rise, the revelation of the Antichrist, whom he defines as the man of lawlessness and the lawless one. He says this in verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed from the, from the Lord will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, and this is describing the character then of his rise and his reign of the Antichrist, the one who is coming, who is in accord, is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. Indeed, these same signs, these same supposed miraculous events will be surrounding the rise of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, particularly by his associate, the false prophet, whom says that he will perform many signs. He says in verse 11, Then I saw another beast, Revelation 13, 
coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire to come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform. In other words, there's going to be a great spiritual deception that comes from these signs and these supposed works of power that are working alongside this greater deception of the ultimate Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist moving to its zenith when there will be a single individual who is recognized as the epitome of and the full embodiment of the evil that had been leading up to that time. Demonic deception will be at its apex, its highest point. Let me note a second reason they believe what is false. Because there will be a unique wholesale rejection of the truth at that time. There will be a unique wholesale rejection of the truth. So not only will there be false, client, uh, false Christ, not only will there be false claims to be coming in the name of the Messiah, not only will there be these miraculous events that will deceive many, but also there will be a wholesale rejection of the truth. A wholesale rejection of the truth. We just read it. Paul already mentioned it. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he says in verse 7. But go back up to verse 6, if you're there. And now you know what restrains him, speaking of this final revelation of the man of lawlessness, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so implied until he is taken out of the way. What is he referring to there? Who will be taken out of the way? Well, most likely then, we would understand this as the church, which will not be present at the time this man of lawlessness is revealed. It could also be a reference then to the Holy Spirit and His unique manifestation of the presence of Christ and of God through His church and through His people. But the point here, in in any case, is this, that the lawlessness of that time will be unrestrained. It will be unrestrained and wickedness will be rampant on a global scale that has never yet been experienced. And that will work together with the the influence of the false Christ, the false prophets, and the man of lawlessness. But there's more than that. Look what he says in verse 11. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved because they embraced instead a lifestyle of wickedness. And so he says in verse 11, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. In other words... Part of this deception is because God Himself will send a deluding influence, an influence to blind the minds and harden the hearts of those who at that time have so rejected the truth of God and followed after lies. This is not unheard of in God's judgment of His people. Listen to 2 Chronicles 18. He says this, Beginning in verse 21, he's, he's here preparing, he's preparing his people for judgment, for judgment. And there's a prophet before him by the name of Micaiah. And he said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he, being God, said, you are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. 
Verse 22, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. In other words, a part of God's judgment then is not only a leaving to the deception that is in the world already through the Antichrist, but indeed furthering that deception by His own hand and hardening the minds of those hearts that are already hard, of blinding them to the truth. And so it will be in a heightened sense in these final days. The deception will be great because sin will abound, demonic deception is increased, and God will blind and harden the minds and the hearts of those who choose wickedness instead. And I'd make one application here as a footnote, but also an application here. And it's this, that whenever the Word of God is neglected or rejected, there is no ability to have spiritual discernment. So that's why also they're going to believe what is false. The truth of God's testimony has been rejected. There is no spiritual discernment. And so they are open to whatever false claims come down the road. They have no objective means by which to evaluate what's being said or what they're beholding. And so they will be deceived. It's the opposite of what God reminded His people in Isaiah 8.12 to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because... They have no dawn. It is because they have no dawn. And indeed, there will be a Christian witness at this time. We'll look at this later, but that makes, makes very, God makes that very clear. He says the gospel of this kingdom will be preached to the nations. We have in Revelation an angel preaching the gospel from heaven. Two witnesses and the many, many that are martyred. But this testimony will be drowned out by the greater presence of evil at the time. Let me give a third reason. A third reason that people will be deceived. One is because the rise of false Christ will be associated or accompanied with false signs and signs that will produce wonder. Another is because lawlessness will be increased and God will descend ascend a deluding influence. And a third is this. Because people want then, as they do now, the kind of deliverance and benefits these false Christ will offer. And that is an important point. In other words, the people who are deceived are the ones who are seeking the wrong kind of relief from the wrong kind of burden. Now this will be a particular temptation for them because of the miseries and the suffering that will mark that time. It will be a particular temptation for them who want to escape the burden and the suffering of the war and the famine of the earthquakes that will be in great measure upon the earth at that time. But they won't want that. They won't want the gospel that the others are dying for. They'll only want deliverance from these economic and physical sufferings. And indeed, that is exactly how the spirit of lawlessness or the mystery of lawlessness and the spirit of Antichrist works in our own days. The true Christ offers forgiveness of sin, deliverance from the wrath of God, a restored relationship with the Father through His Son, to live in spiritual fellowship with Him, to have spiritual strength, obedience, and hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is not what they want. And indeed, this is why the Jews missed Christ. That's what He came to offer them. To be a savior. To restore their relationship with the Father. That's not the Christ they wanted. They wanted one who would release them from the misery of the oppression of a Roman Empire. And it's no different now and it's no different in those final days. And that's why they'll follow false religious leaders. When the ultimate false Christ arises, the Antichrist, he will offer peace, economic prosperity military victory, but he will not offer forgiveness of sin, holiness of life, and the hope of eternity with God. Those are not going to be his message, but that is the message of the true God. So there'll be deception, not only by individuals, these false Christ, but there'll be deception by world conflicts. Look at verse 6. 
You will be hearing then of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now the language there, verse 6, speaks of certainty. You could say it this way. You will certainly hear of wars and rumors and wars and so forth. These are to be expected. You're not to be surprised. Now there is one sense when we read these words from Christ in which there's nothing spectacular in what He's saying. There's nothing spectacular in what He's saying. In fact, wars and rumors of wars have been the case of mankind since Genesis all the way to the end. Wars and rumors of wars have defined human history. And in addition to the fact that we are living in what God Himself defines as the last days, it is the normal experience of God's people and all people at this present time. Now because that's the case, I want to first note this, the general word of warning that He's giving to His disciples and that we also can pull away. And it's this, do not be deceived by false alarm and false teachers who would use world events to make false claims about the return of Christ, or their, their relationship to God's messianic promise. Indeed, the horrors of, and fears of war have a natural tendency to cause people to think of the end of days. The 20th century was full of untold carnage. World War I, over 16 million people died, including military and civilians. World War II, 60 million people died, again, civilians and soldiers. It's horrific. The horrors of war are unimaginable, and those who have actually lived through them can give their unique testimony. But we all understand the absolute carnage that happens when men face each other for the sole purpose of killing each other. And so the general warning here is don't try to read every world event as a marker of the end. And don't follow every teacher or person who tries to use these events as a claim to some special knowledge about the Messiah's coming. Indeed, Jesus Himself will say in verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. These things are going to happen. They will But the time of his return will be like a thief in the night. Notice also in verse 7 he adds this. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now this is important because it again affirms that he cannot be talking here about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It was not nations against nations that the people were concerned about. At that time it was the singular Roman nation who was mounting up its opposition to the Jews and would finally be the instrument of God's destruction of the temple. He cannot be talking about 70 AD here. He also adds... That there will be cataclysmic events of nature, famines and earthquakes. And again, as with war and rumors of war, there is a sense in which these will characterize the general period of the last days. Our world certainly knows famines. Let me give you a few examples. There was a Chinese famine of 1907 that claimed the lives of over 25 million people. 25 million people. It was said of that famine that on a good day, only 5,000 people died. There was another famine in China that lasted from 1959 to 1962 and claimed the lives of over 43 million people. These numbers could continue on and on. Earthquakes, we certainly have known. In 2010, there was a 7.0 earthquake in Haiti that killed officially 316,000 people. In 1960, there was a 9.5 earthquake, which is equivalent to 1,000 atomic bombs going off at the same time in Chile, which claimed the lives of over 6,000 people and was felt 485 miles away in Hawaii. In 1556, it's recorded in China that an 8.0 earthquake claimed the lives of over 830,000 people. And these could go on and on. But again, what I want to note here is this. 
that as significant as these events are, they are not the end. And note this, they are not even signs of the end. They have nothing to do yet with the end of the age. These are simply the wars and the famines and the earthquakes and the suffering that are a part of living in a fallen creation. As Paul said in Romans 8.22, all creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth until now. And that's what they are. These are not prophetic signs when there's 43 million people at this age that die of a famine. Nor are they comparable to what will come at the end. Jesus is specifically referring here to the things that are the beginning of the end of the last days, the final days before His return at the beginning of the tribulation. So let's consider that more closely. Look what He says at the end again of verse 6. This is not yet the end. And in verse 8, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. These are not yet the full experience of what is to come, but they mark it. They mark the beginning part of it. They mark what will happen at the time just before Christ is preparing His return and unleashing His judgment. Mark says that the end is yet to come, that final end, that final end when He returns. But this is the beginning part of the end. Now again, some want to see birth pangs as a reference to the entire period of the last days since the ascension of Christ. And this is broadly conceivable, but hardly fits the imagery here that Jesus is using. Birth pains speak of the beginning of labor, imagery which hardly fits again nearly 2,000 years of church history, but precisely fits an intense seven-year period of God's particular judgment upon the earth and His people. Delivery of the child in this sense, in this case, would be then the return of Christ, which He will address beginning in chapter or verse 29. And in chapter 25. In fact, Paul uses the same picture to refer to this eschatological return of Christ, the period that will just precede it. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. Beginning in verse 1, he says this, Now as to times and epochs, brother, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, in this case the day of the Lord, this final aspect of the day of the Lord of destruction, will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying peace and safety, verse 3, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. They will not escape. Jesus is referring to a very specific period of time here. And this imagery is often used of a time of coming judgment in the Old Testament. I'll just mention them for the sake of time. You read Isaiah 13, 6-13. Judgment is coming to God on the people and it is like the pains that come upon a woman in labor. So again, while these things may characterize the last days in general, Jesus is specifically talking about the end of the age. And they will have a measure of devastation that is yet unknown. Indeed, the sequence of events laid out here in Matthew 24, 4-14, the war, famine, death, martyrdom, earthquakes, exactly parallel the seal judgments of Revelation 6, 13-17 when God has begun to unleash His wrath upon the world. So why don't you turn over there with me. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 comes immediately after the vision that John had of the worship that's taking place in heaven. He... Seeing the myriads and the thousands singing before the throne, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There is a scene of worship. But then after the scene of worship, there is the beginning of the unleashing of the seven seals which was taken by the Lamb back in chapter 5. When he says, And I saw between the throne with the four elders and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. These are the seals of that book that are being opened, that are unleashing the wrath and the judgment of God upon the earth. 
in the future days, in the final days. Verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is then the first seal, a white horse, a crown, conquering. Someone to make this, in fact, parallel with the return of Christ in the white horse in Revelation 19, but that hardly fits the language here. This is most likely a reference to the early stages of the Antichrist, who will be ascending and rising and gaining power during this time of military unrest, taking military advantage and gaining quick victories. In fact, because this word for crown here speaks of the victor's crown, some see that this is in fact bloodless victories in which the Antichrist will ascend through conflict and intrigue and deception, which would be hinted at in Daniel chapter 8, referring to this Antichrist, and he says this, Daniel does, verse 3, that I, or excuse me, verse 23 says this, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, here speaking of yet a future king, even to us, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Very likely that is the events that are going on here, that he is rising up, this one who is coming through deception and through intrigue. In fact... While the Antichrist will not specifically be revealed until the middle of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, he will be present and rising up to power long before that time. And in fact, the beginning of the tribulation period is marked not so much by worldwide turmoil in which there is great carnage, but the initial years will be marked by a relative peace that will be brought by this one ruler. In verse 27 of Daniel 9, it says that he will make again a firm covenant with the many for one week. In other words, this is going to be the one who's going to have the final solution to the issue of peace for Israel and the surrounding nations. This is the one who's going to have the solution to the war that has ravaged so much of that area of the world. Look at the second seal, though. This is going to come to an abrupt end. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Again, the relative sense of peace and stability through the earlier victories of the Antichrist were replaced by a period of intense War and unrest. Here, it's likely the wars and the rumors of wars that we mentioned of Matthew 24, 6, which coincides with this picture, which speaks then of the movement of the Antichrist and his march for war and conflict again, out of which he will reign victorious and he will ascend to power. Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 through 45, we'll look at later, marks some of the military exploits of this Antichrist who is to come there doing battle with the king of the north, most likely Russia, almost certainly Russia, who will form some kind of alliance with the Middle Eastern nations and the king of the south who also will come against the Antichrist, but he will defeat them. The point here is that there is war, there's rumor of wars, and it will continue, and that will be a major part of the Antichrist's rise to power. There are then the third and the fourth seals, beginning in verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Speaking there of exorbitant prices for food because of a shortage of food on the earth, very likely in consequence of the war and the battles that have just taken place. 
In verse 7, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Again, this is a unique time of famine and death. Death by sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast. Many that are destroying almost without restraint, taking as much as a quarter of the earth. In 2015, a population report noted that there were 7 billion people on the earth. 7 billion people. A quarter of that many people, even at this present time, would be approximately one. 0.75 billion people who are killed and put to death during this unleashing of the third and the fourth seals and the wrath of God. We do have historical precursors of that that pale in comparison, but the bubonic plague in the 14th century is said to have killed approximately a quarter of Europe's population. But this is far worse. This is a quarter of the whole earth is going to be affected by these things, the sword, the famine and pestilence there is the fifth seal the martyrs when the lamb broke the fifth seal in verse 9 i saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of god and because of the testimony which they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying how long O lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth and there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. Jesus will speak of being betrayed, those who believe in him at this time, even by their own family members at a massive, massive rate, that the opposition against the truth will be so great that not only will many be saved at that time, but the fact is the persecution will be so severe that there will be almost many of them, if not most of them, will be immediately killed with the sword or beheaded, as he'll mention later in the book of Revelation. Look at the sixth seal. I looked when he broke in verse 12, the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs, was shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved from its place. This being most likely a part of the famines and the earthquakes that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24, 7, which far outshines in magnitude and severity the destruction that we have seen to this point. This is not only earthquakes, however, it's singular. This is a particularly great earthquake and one that will bring such devastation that it could be said even that the mountains were moved out of their places. He's borrowing language here from the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 34, let me read that to you. He says this, Draw near, O nations, speaking of the wrath and judgment that is coming in these last days. O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against the nations, His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench. The mountains will be drenched with their blood. Verse 4. And all the hosts of heaven will wear out. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Revelation borrowing from much of that language. However, this is not the final or the only earthquake. In Revelation 8.5, he mentions an angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth and there flowed peals of thunder and sounds of flashes and lightning and an earthquake. Another great disturbance. In chapter 11, verse 13, And in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Verse 19, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Chapter 16, he mentions it again. The seventh angel poured out his bowl, this in the context of the bowl judgments, upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty it split the city into three parts. In other words, these are disturbances, earthquakes, of untold magnitude that will characterize these, the final days. And while the descriptions of the result of the earthquake in Revelation 6, 12-13 represent, resemble in some ways the events of Matthew 24, 29-30 with the return of Christ, it's not the same event. For indeed, in Matthew 24, these events will happen After the distress of those days in Revelation, it is at the beginning, the beginning of birth pains of the distress of those days. And in Matthew 24, it is immediately followed by the return of Christ. In Revelation 6, the return of Christ is yet at least four years away from happening. So these are not the same events, but they do mirror the destruction in many ways And the devastation that is going to come. Look what he says in verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So they clearly understood that these judgments had a Godward direction. In other words, they were coming from God. And in some sense, it might be possible that that very understanding of the divine nature of these destructions that are coming to the earth play into the very claims of the Antichrist that will come later even to exalt himself as God. So again, while many false teachers have arisen Many wars and famines have killed millions. Nothing compares to these birth pangs which are coming upon the earth in preparation for the Lord's return. Let me quickly, to end, point you back to Matthew 24 and verse 6. He says this, and let me end with this. Quickly. We'll pick it up here next week. But he says, See that you are not frightened, for it must take place. In other words, don't be inwardly anxious or disturbed. This is an astounding statement. How could Jesus say this in light of the events that will be suffered or be, cause great suffering upon the world and his people? How could he say that? Let me give you at least two reasons. One, and I'll just mention these and then we'll pray. Because it's not unexpected. It's not unexpected. Believers at that time are not to act and feel as though something unusual or unexpected is happening. God is telling you beforehand. He says that again in verse 25. Behold, I have told you in advance these things that are to take place. And while this has particular application to those who come to faith in Christ during the time of God's wrath, it is the reality that sustains the church and the And the saints in trial now. Number two. It's not unexpected first. And two. Because God is sovereign. It must take place. It must take place. And we then are to trust in our sovereign God. Let me end with this and then we'll pray. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk this prophet knows that destruction is coming upon God's people. That he is going to suffer it. And yet listen to his words. Beginning in verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us, though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me to walk in high places. Let's pray.
Father, how can we even begin to fathom your holiness and your majesty that would, in an act of justice, rightly bring such destruction upon your rebellious creatures? And yet it is so. And as we've mentioned so many times, as your word has reminded us that we are to take these truths and learn to walk soberly in this world in holiness and godly conduct, living for those things that are eternal and not the things that are passing away. We pray that it would have this effect on us. Help us to gain wisdom, to grow in compassion, and delight at ever deeper levels of the salvation that you've given to us. For this wrath, as great as it is, doesn't compare to the suffering of the Son of God on the cross and some mysterious degree of suffering that could atone for the sins of all of your people throughout the ages. We thank you for the glorious Savior and you, our Lord, for bearing that wrath in our place and drinking it fully down to the dregs and then rising from the dead so that whatever is experienced in this life and in this world is only temporary, but we are grounded in the hope that our future is yet with you in a kingdom that will not be taken away. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and say, I did go a couple minutes over, so we'll dismiss, and uh, Lord bless you, and God will see you next week, and we'll pick it up there at Matthew 24, 6. That's the